feels good to be back up on the stage. Hopefully I won't walk off the end of it with depth perception issues. Um, <laughs> still plaguing me. So there's no doubt that when your pastor goes through the detached retina that sooner or later sermon illustrations are going to crop up. Hopefully not for every Sunday, but for a few Sundays they might pop in here. We're going to try to land this series we've been talking about with the art of worship today. The whole plan got disrupted by what happened. So we're just going to like wrap it up in a nice little ball this morning and talk. But um, <laughs> you don't realize how much you use your eyes when you preach until you can't use your eyes to preach. When I first had the, the, the procedure and all the stuff done to my eyes, they said, you must look down or lay on your left side for a week. That was the rules they sent me home with. They called it prayer position. I'm like, it's perfect. I'm ordered by the doctor to be right here. <laughs> it was cell phone position, basically. So I had to look down. So I was praying for a week, right? Or I had to lay on my side. That was the rules. Now, I can tell you, because I'm honest this way, by day five, I'm like, really? Do I still have to keep looking down? You know, <laughs> can't watch TV looking down. Can't drive looking down. You don't want me to, at least. That'd be kind of fun, right? So there's all these restrictions, these rules around, we're going to heal your eyesight and it's going to get better over time, but you can't look up. Now, if you're like me, anytime somebody gives you a set of rules, you're like, okay, I know this is the rule, but I can follow it this much, right? Like, can I look down and look like that? <laughs> can I, I kind of look up and let me go back down? Like, it's, think about how we obey rules. The doctor gives you a set of rules. You must follow them for the sake of your health, in my case, and the sake of my eye. But when somebody puts rules in our life, we decide to what extent or exactly how we're going to follow those rules. Think about it. We just came through tax season. There's a set of rules. Is this deductible or is it not? I'll decide for myself whether that's a benefit deduction or not. How about speeding? That speed limit is clearly posted. What's the unspoken rule about the speed limit? Eh, five miles over, they won't mess with you. That's our interpretation of a speed limit. It says 50, that means I can drive 55 without a ticket. Park downtown, two-hour parking. Think they've checked the street yet? Can I go three hours without getting a ticket? We have rules in our life. We have doctors telling us what to do. We have city laws telling us what to do. We have all of these guidelines. My favorite. What about parenting? What's the rule as a parent? Do as I say, not as I Here's what I'm saying. We have all these guidelines in our life, and then when we have the guideline put in front of us, we decide for ourselves what that means for us to follow. Nothing wrong with that. We all know there's like a five-mile-an-hour grace period because the police officer is not going to fill out the paperwork for a speeding ticket unless it's egregious or a school zone or something, right? But we interpret laws. You could say... That is, what happens is, the way we follow rules is what we really believe about that rule. 
Hold your head down for seven days, Charlie. <laughs> I don't think it'll hurt me too bad to watch a little bit of television. You know what I mean? Like, that's my interpretation of the rule. The intent is, lay on your left side, but if I lay on my back and my head's still turned, does that count? Like, we figure it out. We start working, figuring out what workarounds are. Like in college, do I have to go to class or do I really not have to go to class? Do I really have to read every day or just enough for the exam and then I don't have to worry about it anymore? The limits placed in our life, we start interpreting them. We start deciding what, really mean, what it really means to keep that rule and how that rule applies to us. And what do we do with those rules where other people are concerned? Your 16-year-old daughter with a brand new driver's license does not go five miles an hour over. Am I right? You better not. Never mind, I go 10. That's my interpretation. Nothing wrong with any of that, except we do the same thing with God's rules. The way, when the Bible says, thou shalt not fill in the blank, or, God says, or the Bible says, love your neighbor as yourself, or put the interests of your spouse ahead of your own, what do we automatically do? What that means for me is this. You see, we do what we actually believe about a rule. We follow a rule. What we do is we live out what we really believe the Bible teaches. If it says this, but I think following it is here, this is my interpretation. This is what I'm going to do. I'll give you a great example. Maybe it's not a great example because it's not a hard and fast rule. I've already done it myself right here on stage. Tithing. Is tithing really 10%? Is it 10% if I've got a bunch of debt and I've got to fix that first? Is it 10% Old Testament or 10% New Testament? I know it says be generous, but I really need to pay my mortgage. We take the rules and we live out the rules that God gives us the way we interpret them to be lived out. Now, there's some, there's some things about that that's okay. But on another level, what are we doing with Scripture when we do that? What are we doing with God's rules when we do that? We're putting ourselves above them. We're saying, I, hey, there's the Bible. It says this in black and white, but for me, it doesn't mean the same thing as it does for somebody else. Who have we made God over Scripture at that point? Who is the authority in our life when we look at the rule that the God has given us and go, yeah, but that was a long time ago. He doesn't really mean that anymore. Who's in control in theory? You could say, and I heard this is the way a seminary professor of mine said it to me. Theology is application. The way we apply this book to our life is our theology. When you start to let that resonate for a minute, it's like, I know I'm supposed to do this, but this is the way I do it. Then what I really believe the rule is, is not this, but this. And it's expressed in the way I live, not in what I think. We do it all the time. I know the speed limit's 55, but I know I can go 60. I know God says do this, but that for me that means I can do this. Or, 
being a former youth pastor, the question I got all the time, how far is too far from teenagers, right? God says, be pure, stay outside of marriage with physical expressions of intimacy. And teenagers go, okay, but how intimate can I be before I break that rule? <laughs> what we, do we really believe God says this for us? Or, and if we, even if we believe it, what we really believe gets expressed in the way we live. Now that's tough. What that means is we have to decide who the authority is. Paul did some of this in Scripture for us, which is helpful. A little context. The Corinthian church. Paul's writing a letter to the Corinthians. And he's talking to them about food sacrificed to idols. In Paul's day, that meant that food was unclean. So he's talking to some Hebrews going, hey, if the food's been sacrificed in pagan worship, then it's been, you shouldn't eat it. That's kind of the rule. However, just like, because things were totally different back then, you had Christians going, well, there were some who thought that meant, if I don't know it was sacrificed to idols, I can still eat it. If I don't know that coffee has 500 calories, I can still drink it. You know? <laughs> like, like, ignorance is bliss approach. And you had some that were so strict about it, when they were invited over to a friend's house, they would ask, was this food sacrificed to an idol? And they would reject the generosity of their neighbor based on the answer to that question. And so Paul is trying to help them apply the principle about not eating food sacrificed to idols to their lives lived out. Remember, this whole series has been about the art of worshiping God with our whole life. And so really, the art of worship is how you apply what you believe to every situation in your life. And it is an art. 60 miles an hour in a 55? Eh. <laughs> it's not hard. If it's hard and fast, we need to accept it as hard and fast. If we can fudge it, then we really think the rule is 60, not 55. How do you do that? How do you know when you can go 60? How do you know when you really need to stay under 55? How do you know when you need to go 50? <laughs> it's not hard, fast science in some cases. It takes, what does loving my neighbor in this situation look like? Especially when it gets gray like that, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. So am I supposed to give them all my money? Because that's what I want them to do for me, <laughs> right? How do you apply the rule? Here's the rule. But what do I really believe about that rule and how do I live it out in my life? So Paul's helping them understand the rule. And so he goes along and he says, I'm going to back up a little bit, I think, just because to give you some context. This is the dicey part when you try to read after eye surgery. Um, this is 1 Corinthians. I brought these along as a backup. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 is going to be on the screen. But I want to back up for a few seconds. If some, verse 28, but if someone says to you, this has, been, this has been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it, out of consideration for the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I mean the other person's conscience, not your own. For why should my liberty be subject to the judgment of someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why should I be, be denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? So he's trying to help them figure out how you navigate this. Then he sums up his argument this way, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. 
whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do for the glory of God. This is a life of worship in this verse. In other words, we tend to, I've said this before, we tend to define worship as 11 to 12 on Sunday morning at Connection. Hey, you're supposed to worship God. Cool. See you at 11 a.m. There's the rule. Worship God. How do you apply it to your life? Well, if you apply 1 Corinthians 10.31 to your life, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. By the way, glory of God or to glorify God is my working definition of worship. That if you do something for, that glorifies God, you are worshiping God. Because if you're glorifying yourself, who's getting all the praise? Yourself. But if I'm a teacher for the glory of God, if I'm a counselor for the glory of God, if I'm a real estate agent for the glory of God, then I can worship God by selling real estate. Suddenly, the definition of worship is not 11 to 12 on Sunday. It is the way you do your homework. It is the way you treat your friend at school. It is the way you treat your friends at work, your colleagues at work. It is the way you love your family and sacrifice for your family. If you're doing it for God's glory and for God's sake and to honor God, then you are participating in worship. Our definition of spirituality and worship is way too narrow. So here's the litmus test for Paul. He basically says this, whether the action brings glory to God or provokes jealousy of God, is the litmus test. You see, the Old Testament talks about God being jealous, which is a weird word because the way we use jealousy, it usually means you know, something, something not good going on, right? I'm jealous of them, or I'm jealous of their achievement, or I'm jealous of their spouse, or they're making me jealous, or whatever. And so it's hard for us to envision God being jealous. But what would God be jealous about? Us worshiping anything else. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two, no graven images. The first two is God doesn't want you devoted to glorifying or worshiping anything else but him. To do so is to draw the jealousy and the wrath of God, is to violate those commandments. So when I hold scripture out and go, there's the rule, but I think I understand it better. And I elevate myself as God over my life. What have I done? I'm worshiping me. <laughs> I'm violating the first two commandments right there because I think I know better than the guy who inspired and wrote it. So the litmus test, whether something is right or wrong, is does it glorify God or does it glorify me? Or something else? Or does it become so sacred to me that it becomes an idol? And something so important to me that I can't lay it down. I, will I mentioned this at the outset. Lose your sight. I'm not saying my eyesight's an idol, but it certainly does help me worship God to be able to see. There's scripture passages about your eyes being the light for your soul. I told you this, this is going to be a sermon illustration every now and then. We're going to work it back in sooner or later with that passage. That is true. If you can't see, you can't take in what God's got in front of you. If you can't see, you can't audio scripture. I mean, that's your options, right? Things that are so sacred, we can't lay them down. Now, here's the thing. It says, whatever you do, 
whether you eat or drink, do for the glory of God. The second piece of this means that there is no compartmentalization of our life. You don't have spiritual life and secular life. Oh, on Sunday I'm spiritual. Or maybe for 10 minutes each day before I go to work I'm spiritual. But then the rest of the week is my secular world, my real world, my regular job, it's my regular life, and here's my spiritual life. If Paul says, whatever you do can glorify God, there is no compartmentalization. Everything is spiritual. You are always worshiping. You can't not worship. Can you imagine walking up to Jesus and going, how's your spiritual life, Jesus? <laughs> you imagine having that conversation? One of the disciples walking up, how was your quiet time today? <laughs> I mean, the scriptures tell us that Jesus got away to pray, right? He did take time where he spent a time with the Father alone in deep prayer. We would call that our quiet time or our time with God, personal worship, whatever. But there is no, this life is spiritual, this life is secular. My day-to-day -day job. You were made by God for a relationship with God to worship God in everything that you do, whether you eat or whether you drink or wherever you go. That's what we're made for. It's for the glory of God. Genesis calls us image bearers. He calls us people who bear out God's love toward others. God pours into us. And we pour out to the world. Do we only do that on Sunday? Are we supposed to be only be loving and keep the commandments on Sunday and the rest of our life we can do whatever we want? Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. The gospel is meant to trans transform your whole life, not just determine your destination. And so if theology is application, what we really believe about God and who He is, is how we apply it to our life, then our job as Christians then is to figure out how to apply what we know about God, what about, we know about His truth, what we know about the Bible, to every aspect of our life, not just our spiritual life. The Bible is not just to help us to know God better, to know God better. We know God better so that we can apply it to how we parent, to how we manage our money to how we manage our relationships, to how we manage every aspect of our life. And just like the Corinthians, what we tend to do is we tend to misapply the gospel in a couple of ways. You see, if we're working at this out, the question we have to ask then is, do our actions glorify God? There's a Hebrew word, I've, I've mentioned it at Connection years ago, and I'm kind of bringing it back up now because it ties in here. It's the word avadah. All right, I wrote it on this little sign right here. So you can see what I'm talking about. That is the Hebrew word for worship. By the way, it's also interpreted work, craftsmanship, artistry. It's the basis for the word in Ephesians 2.10 when it says that you are God's workmanship. You are God's masterpiece created for works that he set aside for you to do from the beginning of created for works that he set aside for you to do since the beginning of the earth. If the Hebrew word for worship can be interpreted work as well, then the work God has given us to do is worship. Does that make sense? We don't get to go Sunday on, Monday off. We are always worshiping God with our whole life. 
and how do we apply that? So there's two ways that we misapply the gospel. Number one is we ignore the rule so much the rule might, not, might as well not exist. <laughs> we just ignore it. Hey, God didn't really mean that or I'm going to do this the way I want to or I think even, the Christ, even Christians are bad at divorce so it's okay. Like it's permissive. Just do whatever you want. God will forgive you is the way you've heard it said before. Do whatever you want. Ask for forgiveness. God will forgive you. Matthew is, my little boy Matthew is smart enough to realize that we, have, we, we talk about forgiveness at home a lot. We talk about saying, I'm sorry, a lot. We talk about asking for forgiveness a lot in our house. Matthew has extrapolated that to mean that if he screws up and we, he asks for forgiveness, we won't punish him. <laughs> he doesn't understand that, I'm sorry I did that, will you forgive me, does not mitigate the consequence of the action. So the answer has to become, of course we forgive you, but you still lose this for this many days or whatever. Like, I'm sorry doesn't mean you get a pass. <laughs> and, that's pro- and he learned that because in a couple of cases, I was so happy that he owned it and felt remorse that I probably did let it pass. You know? I mean, your eight-year-old goes, so sorry, will you forgive me? You're not ready to drop the hammer. But that's not how God treats the gospel either. It's not just do whatever you want and I'll forgive you if you ask for it. You might as well not have the rule at that point. In fact, there's another passage in Scripture where Paul goes, so if grace abounds when I sin, should I sin even more so God can display more grace? He's making the same argument. You know what he says the next, word, the next phrase is? Are you kidding me? That's the literal Greek, right? <laughs> of course not is what he says. Should I sin even more so God can display even more grace? Of course not. If we belong to God and we call ourselves his children, then we would want to run from sin. To figure out what is sin and flee from it. To remove it. To get rid of it. To continuously seek to apply what we know about how God wants us to live to every aspect of our life until we're not sinning. As if that was possible. (laughs) But we are supposed to be allergic to sin. We're supposed to run in the other direction, not like, I'm going to bathe in it because God will forgive me anyway. That's one way that we do this. The other way we do this is we go the other direction. And we're so uptight about making sure we follow every rule that God has ever given that we feel like we're not a good Christian if we didn't pray yesterday. You ever felt that? I had had a quiet time in two weeks. I'm a terrible Christian. Maybe you've said that. Maybe it's gone so far that you went, I might need to walk down front again. I'm not sure I'm saved. That we're so worried about following every rule perfectly that if we fail at all, we're not a good Christian. Maybe we're not even a Christian. That's misapplying the gospel too. There's a church word for that. It's called legalism. That's how, you, that's how you get rules in the Jewish society where they would define what work on the Sabbath was. You couldn't carry your mat more than X number of meters. You couldn't, do, you couldn't pick heads of grain. Remember these passages of Scripture. Your disciples picked heads of grain on the Sabbath. They violated the Sabbath. 
Like they had it down to a measurement of what, can, what it crossed over into work in order to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. I forget the exact number, but there's 300 and some odd commandments to keep the 10. You think you're bad at 10. Try keeping the five, six, seven hundred rules they wrote to help you keep the ten. That's not applying the gospel either. That's what Jesus meant when he looked at the, looked at the Pharisees and says, you place a burden on them when they try to follow God. The burden would be trying to keep all of those little rules to keep the ten. That's why when they ask Jesus, what's the most important commandment, what does he say? Love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I've probably said this before. You know you can keep all ten if you keep those two. First four, love God. Second six, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't covet. Those apply to love of neighbor, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. No graven images. No other gods before me. Love God. All the commandments can be summed up in the two. How do I apply the two to Monday to Saturday? When I do, everything I do can be worship. But if you lay down your head at night, down at night and you feel like, I was not a good Christian today. That is the enemy. I had a seminary professor who would say it like this. That comes from the devil and smells like smoke. <laughs> what did he mean? The enemy wants you to feel like you're not an effective Christian. The enemy wants to feel like you can't possibly measure up to God's rules. Because what's our response to that feeling? It's the same response that we have to diet restriction. Eh, one piece of cake ain't going to blow my calorie count. And then when we do, we feel so bad about following the diet, we're like, wings, french fries, and chocolate cake, let's go. That's how, we approach, that's how we approach dieting, right? We try, we try, we try, we try. And when we fail, we're like, eh, forget it. I'm just going to go all in and go to Little Dewey's and pick out. Might as well. I can't, I can't pause. That's how we apply the gospel, too. I tried to follow God for a while. I was no good at it, so forget it. Do you see the danger in this stuff? We tend to take the way we approach other things, like a speeding ticket or parenting or any other restriction in our life, and we go... I just can't go the speed limit. It's 35 miles an hour down this road. You know, like, <laughs> I just can't do it. I'm a terrible driver. And we take that principle and then we apply it to how we love God with our life. And it's a misapplication of the gospel. The Corinthians were either eating whatever and didn't care or they were micromanaging. Well, when was it sacrificed to idols? Was it sacrificed to idols last week? Did you give me food that I didn't know was sacrificed to idols? If so, I need to repent. Dude, whatever you do, do it for God's glory, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. If you're living from the love of God that is in your life and is in your heart, you'll be all right. God is glorified in what we do. Two more verses I want to read just to drive this point home and then we'll be, we'll be done. This is, uh, oops. This is Romans 12, first three verses. In theory, that's 1 Corinthians. Here we go. Now, everything in light of everything I just said, listen to this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. What's Paul telling the Romans? Live your whole life as a living sacrifice to God. That is your act of worship, to put God above you. Do not be conformed by the rules of this world, by the things of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When your mind is renewed, when your understanding is renewed, when you practice application, I'm adding words here, obviously, then you can discern what is acceptable to God. When you apply the gospel to your life, the litmus test will apply. Does this glorify God or does this glorify something else? Does this worship God or does this worship me? You apply that litmus test, you'll be able to discern what the will of God is for your life. College kids ask me all the time, how do you know what God's will is? Here you go. <laughs> Renew your understanding of the gospel and you will be able to discern what is good and pleasing to God. I read the do everything in worship passage a little while ago with 1 Corinthians, but he says it in Colossians this way as well. I'm balancing bookmarks. Here we go. This is Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul's saying the same thing again. In whatever you do in word or deed, do in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God through him. So in the name of Jesus. That's really what that third commandment about watching, about taking the Lord's name in vain is about. It's I'm living in Jesus' name. I'm glorifying God with my life. And I am grateful for the life God has given me to live. Then I am worshiping God. Let me put something to rest here. You will not get this right. Thanks, Charlie. You won't be able to perfectly apply the knowledge of God to your life. We have this nasty little thing, it's called sin, that still distorts our understanding of God, still distorts our interpretation of God sometimes. That's why he made it so we learn from each other. That's why he made it so we work through each other and love each other and hold each other accountable. He set it up so that there's other ways to hear from God, to test what God says. The Bible says this. Well, I think it says this. Well, I think it says this. 2,000 years of people figuring it out way smarter than me. We come to some conclusions about that. Conversation over a coffee in a coffee shop. God can speak through somebody to you in a moment of indecision and unconcern. In a worship service, in lyrics in a song, God can make you go, oh. In a sermon, it is possible for God to reveal His truth. and You go, I need to take this home and apply it. <laughs> but... You're going to mess up because we're not perfect. We're seeking to live like Christ and we're going to try our hardest and we're going to mess up and we're going to ignore some rules and we're going to mess up. But the art of worship is trying to figure out how I am trying to follow God. And when I screw up, he forgives me anyway. Remember the difference? I can do what I want. And he'll forgive me is wrong. Do absolutely everything perfect or I'm no good is wrong. But in whatever I do, in word or deed, whether I eat or whether I drink, is my life glorifying God? 
if that's my focus, if that's my intent, then when I fall short, God is faithful. When you confess your sins, he will forgive you. If your intent is to be as evil as you want, he's not going to forgive you. If your intent is to try to earn your way there by being so good, you're never going to get there. But when you find this artistry, when you start weaving the truth of God into every aspect of your life, and you're seeking to honor Him in your relationship with your spouse or your kids, and you're seeking to honor Him in your relationship with each other, and when you're seeking to give and be generous and be loving, and when that's the intent of your heart, then John Wesley said you could be perfect in that sense. He believed we could be perfect in the intent of our heart even when we fail. I'm sure I've said this before too. One of my youth pastors used to tell me, God is more interested in your direction, not your perfection. He knows you're not going to be perfect. He is interested in whether you're becoming more and more and more and more like him. The spiritual walk looks more, more like this than it does this. <laughs> or this. You don't pray a prayer and then, boop, I'm perfect. Aren't I perfect? And, you know, and it's not some steady like, I'm more Christian today than I was yesterday. Isn't life great? It's much more like, I was really spiritual for a while, then I went to college. <laughs> I'm much more spiritual for a while, then I got married. You know? And there's these ups and downs throughout our spiritual walk. But what do we say in the midst of all that at Connection all the time? Best of all, there's a reason that's best of all. That whether we're going left or right or upside down or can't see straight, best of all, God is with us. And he is gracious and loving and wants to forgive and wants to guide and wants to care for and wants to inspire and wants you to be like him. And he's not going to go, good luck being a Christian. Hopefully you'll be there when I come back. That doesn't make sense, does it? Hey, I'm going to follow you now, Jesus. Cool. Figure it out. This is Pentecost Sunday. Jesus said, I am leaving and I am sending an advocate, a helper, a counselor, a comforter. Why? To be with you in my absence and one day I'll come back. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy Spirit. If it's up to us to completely figure it out and up to us to completely follow it, we'd be still be lost. But as we try to follow Jesus and as we try to worship him in everything that we do, one thing remains the same. The Holy Spirit is with us in it all. The scripture says, when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Thank you, Jesus. Because I know I couldn't get there on my own. But when we feel that, we realize that God loves us more than we could ever hope or imagine. Let's pray. Gracious God, I call you all that time, all the time, because it's true. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are the one that provides. You are the one that has given us the light and the truth and the things that we need to follow you. You are the one who enabled it by sending your son to die for our sins. And you are the one through your spirit walking with us as we seek to love you with our whole life. Help us to apply the gospel to every part of our life. To love and to know you. 
and to worship you in all that we eat, drink, do, word, or deed. In Christ's name, amen. We all stand together.